you need flexible small business financing, Cabbage has the answer. They've created a way for you to get approved right away online or from your phone for up to $100,000. Visit cabbage.com slash ringer. When you qualify, you'll get a $100 Visa gift card. That's cabbage with a K, K-A-B-B-A-G-E dot com slash ringer. Welcome to the Ringer NBA Show. I'm Chris Vernon. Joining me today, national NBA columnist for the Washington Post, Tim Bontemps. Bontemps. Bruno, what's up, buddy? Hey, man. Uh, before we get into all of the basketball analyses, uh, we must give a special... Uh, I want to send all our thoughts to uh, all of our ESPN colleagues. Tim, much like you, when you work within this NBA bubble, you end up becoming friends with all the people. You see all these people all the time. And so a lot of our friends got bad news yesterday on the uh, NBA side of coverage for ESPN. So just want to thank all of them for their hard work. Hopefully everybody's going to be in a better spot uh, from here on out. But yesterday, yesterday was rough, man. I was, I was on the phone until late last night, finding out more names of people that I had no idea had been let go, but it's certainly going to be a little bit of a different culture uh, covering the NBA with so many guys that are now going to be looking for gigs. Yeah, I mean, you you said it you said it best, Verno. I mean, you know, people, you know, I've become really good friends with you over the years covering the league, and it's the same for you know a lot of other people um, around the country who I've gotten to know and I've been fortunate enough to have you know have this job covering the league. And uh, but yeah, like you said, a lot of a lot of really good people got let go yesterday, and and unfortunately, and. In the journalism business these days, it's a very unfortunate uh, thing that we've had to come to to get used to to seeing people lose their jobs as 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 these various publications and networks downsize. And you know, yesterday was probably the toughest one yet. So, um, yeah, my my thoughts go out to all all of our friends and everybody else who who got let go. And like you said, hopefully they all are able to. Find something else soon because there's a lot of good talented people who who deserve a job that, that currently don't have one. Let's talk about the games that went down last night. The first one was the Wizards and the Hawks, and after I thought the Wizards looked really good in the first couple of games of that series. I didn't know how big of a fight the Hawks were going to be able to put up, but obviously they win Game Three, they win Game Four, and the Hawks were right there at the end of that game, certainly with the chance to win it last night against the Wizards. So I guess my first my first thing is I've been rather impressed with the Hawks and what they've brought to the table. Um, and the other thing is this this series has been – this has turned out to be an extremely good series where now that game six uh, tomorrow night should be great. But give me what you thought watching uh, that Wizards-Hawks game unfold last night. Yeah, I, I, I disagree a little bit, just that I, I'm ready for the series to be over. Really? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know. I've watched these games. I just haven't really. It's been hard for me to get into them. There's been a million fouls called in every game, like basically since game one when they, you know, Paul Paul Millsap and Markeith Morris went back and forth about these MMA comments, and Markeith said they're going to be doing double MMA after that. I mean, the, the refs have just called a million fouls in every game uh, on both teams. It's just it's just been, in my opinion, hard to get much of a flow in these games, but. Um, but look, I thought the series was over after game two. I thought that Atlanta, you know, was, was probably going to lose a game at home, maybe both and would lose in five. And, you know, they went down to Atlanta and kicked the crap out of the wizards twice. And, you know, really controlled a lot of the game last night. Uh, well, you know, I, I thought for quite a long stretch that they might win that game, but, uh, you know, John Wall and Bradley Beal made some huge plays down the stretch. Bradley Beal made some huge defensive plays on a few possessions and, you know, the wizards got just enough. Uh, just enough scoring to win, but um, you know, Game Six tomorrow is going to be really interesting. You know, Yamahimi has been out with a calf injury, and Jason Smith went out last night after having some kind of a calf contusion. So I think I think Marcin Gortat had to play the entire second half, and without if, if Jason Smith can't play tomorrow, they don't have any backup bigs really. So. You know, it, Washington could be in tough shape despite being up three two. I mean, if they don't have any bigs behind Gortat and Morris, who've both been in foul trouble a lot in the series in games six and seven, you know, that, that could really give them a lot of trouble with the way Gortat and, and or with the way that Millsap and, and Dwight Howard have been playing. 
Has your opinion of Dennis Schroeder changed? Mine has. This guy has been, he's been fantastic, Tim. He's been a lot better than I expected for sure. I've never been a huge Schroeder fan. Um, he's been really good in the series. He was really good last night. Um, you know, I, I, I think, you know, it, it's a, it's a big series for him. I mean, it'd been a pretty rough year for Schroeder overall. He got benched a couple times um, in games for stuff. And, and, you know, he'd kind of struggled to adjust to being a starting point guard for the first time, but he's been, you know, he's been their second best player in the series behind Paul Millstap. And, you know, it, it, that's a pretty, it's a pretty big sign for them going forward. I mean, if he can carry this over to next year and play like this all season, you know, it's a big if, but if he can, uh, that, that changes a lot for them because he, you know, he's on a good contract. You know, I think he's only making $60 million a year the next three years. And if he, he plays like this instead of the regular season, Dennis Schroeder next year. They're going to be uh, they're going to be pretty happy with that deal. Who's the bigger problem for Cleveland between Washington and Atlanta? Yeah. Well, I mean, because whoever they play would play the winner at Boston, Chicago. But I, I definitely think that uh, on that side of the bracket, Washington is the best team. Um, I, I'm a little more skeptical about Washington than I was at the start of the series. I thought they would beat Atlanta kind of handily. But um, I uh, I think that they I think that Washington is the team that that could give them the most trouble. You look at those four teams between Chicago, Boston, Washington, and Atlanta, and I think Wall and Beal give Washington the highest ceiling. Um, their defense has been sketchy, like Cleveland's. Uh, but you saw this year the Wizards played the, the Cavs at home and needed a crazy LeBron turnaround fadeaway thirty footer at the buzzer just to send it to overtime. And then they went to, to Cleveland in March, and they blew the Cavs out. So, you know, I, I don't think that Washington would win that series, but I do think those those two guys wouldn't be afraid to play in the Cavs, and I do think that they have the ability to make that at least a competitive series. Yeah, the only thing I worry about is their bench. But, yeah, the reason I ask that is because I am – what we're doing now is out of these series, you just want – at least for me, the reason I'm asking you that is what you want is – Whatever would be most competitive, and I agree with you on Washington, with those two guys and the firepower and Porter, Markeith Morris might be able to do an okay job on Kevin Love. Um, that And, and Gortat really pushed around Tristan Thompson in their game, uh, which is kind of burned in my memory the la- uh, you know, that last couple of weeks of the season when those two teams played. But I think if we are – I think if we're trying to find somebody out of that particular series that we could foresee – at least forcing a game six, a game seven uh, against Cleveland, that would be the one. I guess Toronto got to six last year, right? Because I think they were, what was Cle- Cleveland? Yep. was like four, 14 and two in the playoffs or something like that. So yep. only only one team got two games off of them last year. So if we're trying to search for who could at least win a couple of games or possibly even push them to a, a seventh game, are you higher on Washington than you are Toronto now? Um, I mean, I think Toronto is better suited. I think they're the team best suited to beat the Cavs. But as you see the way that, uh, as you see the way that Toronto has played against the Bucks, and, and again struggled, um, struggled to do you know basic stuff here in the playoffs. I mean, for me, it's just hard to trust that team at this point. Like, you know, I came into these playoffs thinking Toronto was the second best team in the East. They had Lowry healthy. It was like, all right, this is finally the year that the, the Raptors are going to roll through the first round and then they're going to get the Cavs in the second round. It's going to be a war and we'll see if they can finally take that next step and like be a team you can trust in the playoffs. Sure enough, they come out to get, they get blown out in game one. They get blown out in game three. You know, they, they've managed to get back up on top three, two. They're going to Milwaukee tonight. I bet they lose that game tonight because like they've lost game six, a bunch of times the last few years. And well, they'll probably be back in, Toronto for game seven Saturday and trying to advance that. I mean, it's, you know, uh, so yeah, in short, I guess I, I would like to say Toronto is a team that should give Cleveland the most trouble, but with the way Lowry and DeRozan have played in the playoffs, it's hard for me to believe that if they struggle like this against Milwaukee, that all of a sudden when they play Cleveland, they're going to go to another level. And it's just not that they lost those games that they have lost in the Buck series. It's the it's the the point total they have put up. I get that the Bucks are 
a really good uh, defensive team sometimes that create a lot of yep. bad matchups because they're so long. But 76 and 77 points, that is just – it is impossibly bad. 70, I mean, it's one thing to struggle, but you don't see teams not breaking 80, much less twice within a series. That's crazy. Oh, totally crazy. And, and, and that goes back to my point, right? I mean, Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan for the last few years have been guys that were great in the regular season, got to the playoffs, and struggled. And you've seen that again in this series. I mean, Lowry has, has mostly been bad, and DeRozan's been up and down. He's had a couple really good games. He's had a couple really bad games. And, you know, look, if you've got an all-star backcourt like that, you just can't have them be that inconsistent. And – You've seen the Raptors have, have you know, they, they take their cues from those guys. And if those guys are playing well, they look great. And if those guys are playing like crap, they look really bad. And, you know, you know that Cleveland is getting it from LeBron every single night. Kyrie and Love might be all over the place, but you know LeBron is coming with huge numbers every night. And Toronto, if Toronto's going to beat Cleveland or be in that series, they need Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan at the good level for six or seven games because – any games they don't play well against Cleveland, they're going to lose by 35 points. All right. As we said earlier, the uh, that Washington-Atlanta, they're going to have to face the winner of Boston versus Chicago. And that series has flipped completely post-Rondo injury. Boston has won three straight games. Hoiberg's getting pretty beat up um, over some of the, some of the game management uh, that has taken place. But I, I'll ask you this. If we take a step back, it, do you believe that Boston figured some things out and it it just happened to coincide with the Rondo injury. Like how much how much do we just describe what has taken place in that series to Ray John Rondo got hurt and if Rondo would have never gotten hurt then all this stuff about Hoiberg's rotations and everything else we wouldn't even be talking about because Boston would have taken care of him. Do you believe that? Do you believe if Rondo never got hurt that Chicago wins that series? I certainly think that they're up 3-2 right now. I, I don't know if the series is over, but I, I think they win at least one game in Chicago if he's there. I mean, the series has still been competitive, even with Hoiberg being a complete disaster and, uh, and their point guard play being even worse since Rondo got hurt. So, to me, if Rondo was there, you know, I, I do think they would have probably won a game in Chicago and it'd be 3-2 going back to Chicago with a chance for them to close it out tomorrow. Um, doesn't it feel? Now, doesn't, here, let me let me interrupt you real quick. No, doesn't go ahead. It, doesn't go ahead. it feel though that if if Rondo doesn't get hurt, Hoiberg's not a disaster? That's kind of how it feels to me. Um, yeah, I mean, yes and no. I I think, I you know, I was saying this after Game Two. You know, Hoiberg had a plan that worked the first couple games, uh, and and Boston didn't really adjust. But I, as I was saying to people then. You know, I was very curious to see if he could make any adjustments at all, if Brad Stevens did anything in, re- in return to change things up. And you saw in games three and four, you know, as soon as, as, soon as, the, uh, as, soon as the Celtics just run it, ran a few more basic high pick and roll actions for Isaiah Thomas, Robin Lopez was suddenly being yanked out of the game and left on the bench. And, you know, he was the one big advantage they had, right? Like they had Rondo and Butler and Wade play well, you know, at times the first couple of games. They had Robin Lopez destroying them on the offensive glass. Well, then they have Robin Lopez on the bench. They're playing Joffrey Laverne big minutes, and they're they're going through point guards, and they're 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 just doing all this crazy stuff. And um, you know, I I think that would have ended up being a problem anyway. I, he wouldn't have been as big of a disaster, obviously, if if Rondo was there, but. It, you still would have seen the lack of adjustments from this team. It just felt like uh, everything as the series was went kicking. On. It just felt like everything was kicking. People are talking about Bobby Portis. They're talking about Paul Zipser. They're talking about playoff Rondo. And like, if you, if you just take that snapshot of the one moment in time after those first two games, and then it just all went to hell in a handbasket. Like they can't, they can't win without him it, because the drop off is so severe. They can't even withstand you know, a few minutes of these, of, of some of these guards that he's putting out there. I mean, like can't even, can't, they just die. <laughs> you know? Would you, yeah. I, I think I yeah. saw you tweet last night, like Michael Carter Williams, he played like, you know, two seconds and he's, and he's a negative, like immediately. He's like immediate negative. He's atrocious. 
is completely atrocious. I mean, the thing the thing that I don't get, I mean, as Fred as Fred Hoiberg's rotation roulette, as I've called it, uh, just rolls on, and he just keeps trying random crap to see if it will work. I can't understand how Denzel Valentine can't get a chance to play in these games. Like, like what did what did Denzel Valentine do to never get a shot? I mean, here's a guy was a star at Michigan State last year, was expected to walk in and at least be able to play right away, right? Four-year senior, like you thought he would walk in and play. And instead, they're playing Paul Zipser, another rookie, big minutes. They haven't played him at all. Uh, they played Anthony Moore over him last night. And I saw people saying, well, Hoiberg must just not trust uh, Valentine's defense. And I think you and I both know, Anthony Morrow, A, one of the best guys in the league, and B, will probably be the first one to tell you he never guards anybody. So if defense is a problem, then you can't be playing Morrow or Isaiah Canaan. I mean, those are insane decisions. So uh, I, I just don't, you know, that's just one of many examples of things with Hoiberg that I just don't understand. It's like why, why in this series where you need shooting and guys who can create for you, you're not playing the first-round pick you drafted a year ago who was, in theory, able to do those things. Is Boston in trouble versus either Washington or Atlanta? For sure. I mean, I, I, there's you, you've watched this series, and to me they're a, a fine team that won a lot of games in the regular season based off you know, having a lot of depth and having Isaiah Thomas do some insane stuff in, in crunch time of games. Uh, you saw the Thunder kind of have a similar path to being – a good team this year with Westbrook doing insane stuff late and them kind of grinding out wins. And when you get in the playoffs, that formula is much more likely to fail. And the fact that Boston's having this much trouble with, with the bulls. I mean, to me, it, it, it's a sign that if they play Washington or Atlanta in the second round, they're, they're going to have a lot of trouble. You know, I think, especially if they play the wizards, I mean, I, I just really think if they play that Washington team, I, I, it just, it's hard for me to see how they're going to go from barely beating Boston to, or barely beating Chicago to, to beating a much better Wizards team. But, um, no, who knows? Maybe they'll be this year's Toronto and they'll eke out a win in the first round and eke out a win in the second round and make the conference finals and they get destroyed by Cleveland. But, uh, I think that Boston's run, uh, one way or the other ends in the second round. Interesting because I, and I hope it, I hope it is Washington that we get that matchup because of the whole, you know, everybody wearing black to the game, dressing like they're going to a funeral. Like that, that has a chance. In it'll be a that'll be a really fun series. For yeah, sure. we haven't had we don't have rivalries really anymore. That would make for you know they they need to go to war in a playoff series against each other and really get that rivalry going because we've gotten some good moments in it, but not like the deep playoff series where everybody really ends up hating each other and. We don't really have that much anymore, so I'm kind of, I'm kind of rooting for that to take place, just so we can see that whole thing play out and and maybe a real rivalry get going. Yeah, no, it'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, you're right. I mean, we don't have we don't have a lot of those rivalries anymore. You know, Warriors cast is kind of becoming that more, and uh, you know, but but Wizards Wizards Celtics would be a great series. I mean, even though I think both those teams have significant flaws, uh. Uh, you know, I think, I think you know. To your point, they don't like each other. Uh, Bradley Beal and John Wall and Marquise Morris, like the, the Wizards, have a lot of guys who will say a lot of stuff, and the Celtics have a lot of guys who will say a lot of stuff. And I, I think it would be, you know, from our standpoint, is, is from a narrative standpoint and from an entertainment value standpoint. You know, like I said, even though those teams have some flaws, I think it would be a really, really fascinating series. All right, let me get to uh, tonight's games. We kind of touched on uh, Bucks-Raptors. Um, the Raptors are hard to trust. I know they won that last game that was played in Milwaukee, but they're hard to trust. You know that Milwaukee will be jumping tonight uh, in the elimination game. I do kind of think Milwaukee's going to force a game seven. That's what you think too, right? I do. I do. I, it's hard for me to see, you know, Toronto, as as I've said, we've seen this script before from Toronto and they fall apart in game six and lose. And, you know, I think, I think Giannis Antetokounmpo is going to get the bucks to a game seven and then we'll see what happens on Saturday back in Toronto. The late game is the one I'm going to be at Grizzly Spurs. Grizzlies have a chance to force a game seven against San Antonio. Um, your view from the outside watching this series play out with the Grizzlies and the Spurs. What do you think? couple things. 
Uh, I picked Kawhi Leonard for MVP, and I picked him for MVP in large part because I thought people had vastly overrated his supporting cast and for all the talk that James Harden and Russell Westbrook were doing all this stuff with not very good teams. I looked at Kawhi Leonard's team, and I saw a lot of big-name players that are past their prime that were not that good anymore, and he dragged that team to 60-plus wins. And I think, no offense to your Grizzlies, I think what we've seen in this series is a lot of affirmation of that. Um, you know, Kawhi has been absolutely unbelievable in the first five games of the series, and the Spurs, you know, are up 3-2 and, you know, had – pretty close games in game two and game five, you know, they ended up pulling away late, but you know, if you, if you'd said before the series that Kawhi Leonard was going to have the stat line that he has now, you would have said the series went four or five games. So for the fact that it's now going six and I agree with you could very easily go seven. I think to me reinforces that the Spurs are in big trouble as they go forward with that supporting cast. As for Memphis, you know, look, I thought this series was going to be pretty quick and I've been unbelievably impressed with, uh, the fight that Memphis has showed, especially without Tony Allen and Chandler Parsons, you know, they're two projected starting wings coming into the year. And, and I think that David Fisdale deserves a lot of credit, not for, you know, the rant, which was funny. And, you know, it was, it was a great, you know, cultural moment. And I, you know, it was a funny to see a, a guy like Fisdale get that wound up and, uh, and, and start all these memes and t-shirts and stuff. But, you know, he's made some nice adjustments in this series to get Memphis back into it. I mean, playing, you know, playing your guys, Zach Randolph and Marcus Saul together again uh, against, you know, Popovich's big front line was a, was a smart move. It uh, helped start to turn the tide in the series. And, you know, Mike Conley has been, Mike Conley and Marcus Saul have been tremendous. Um, you know, th- those two guys have played like all-stars. And, you know, so I, I don't know if the Spurs, I don't know if Chris will be able to win again tonight. I picked the Spurs to win this one tonight. I think they'll probably find a way to close it out. But if you told me that the Grizzlies sent this back to San Antonio for a game seven, wouldn't be surprised at all. It's been a, it's been a really impressive, really impressive turnaround. And it's been a really fun series to watch. Throughout the regular season and throughout the playoffs, neither of these two teams have won on the other's home court. So there's part of me that right. holds on to that. The other thing is you have this just, seriously extreme version of role players, periphery players playing better at home than they do on the road. The Grizzlies, other guys have been miserable in San Antonio. Uh, The San Antonio guys have been miserable in Memphis. And yet when they go to like, when you, when you see San Antonio playing at home, I mean, like they did the other night, those guys, I mean, I swear there's, there's five minute stretches where they just don't miss at all. And, and they get, you know, it's not like they get crap shots when in Memphis. They just don't make them. So, <laughs> and and there's another part is when you were talking about how some of their big name guys are just older. It's and I think you're right that if they do end up beating the Grizzlies, they're in trouble the next round. They can't do it every game, Tim. It's a one. It's it's an every once in a while deal. You know, Manu Ginobili hadn't hit a shot until Game Five, and then he had big yep. points in the first quarter. I mean, we've seen a game this series where Tony Parker had 22 and another one where he had zero. <laughs> you know, there's just, you know, Kawhi's the only thing you can count on. And I don't trust Aldridge a bit. None. I mean, hell, that game went to overtime. The game four game that was epic that went to overtime, the guy had two rebounds in like 40-something minutes. <laughs> it was crazy. So Kawhi, yeah, I think he, you're right. He, 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 Once no, you get ahead. past Kawhi, right. who do you trust, you know? To, to to give it to you. Yeah, no, totally, totally. I mean, I think I think your point about LaMarcus is well said. I mean, he's really not looked like the same player. And, you know, I, I think that they're going to lose to the Rockets. I thought that going into the playoffs, and I still believe that. Uh, you look at Houston's team, right? And the Pau Gasol, Tony Parker, point guard, center axis, I think is going to get demolished by James Harden. Like I just, they're going to run pick and roll after pick and roll after pick and roll. And you know, Dan Tony, he is ruthless. Like if he finds a weak spot on the court, he's having his guys attack it every time you saw against Oklahoma city. And whenever Anis Canner was on the court, they ran a pick and roll with him in it every single possession and obliterated the thunder. And they're going to do the same thing with power. Saul when he's on the court, they're going to do the same thing with David Lee when he's on the court. 
And I, to me, I just look at that Spurs team and I just don't, I don't see how they're going to score enough. Like, you know, you know, Houston's getting to 110. And for me, especially on the road, like you said, I don't, I can't see the Spurs getting to 110. Well, even so, against the, even against the Grizzlies the other night, they played out of their right. minds and put up 116. I mean, you might have to, right. you, you might have to score. I mean, you got to get to 115 against Houston, you know? Yeah. You, right, they're going to score 110. Like they're they're just going to do it. So you got to get to you got to get to 110. Yep. And like you said, at home, I think they can do it if they shoot well. Because Houston ain't exactly playing D either. Like Memphis is Memphis is going to be a tougher team defensively than Houston. But yeah, I mean, you know, and, I, and look, I I think they're going to win the series. But look, I mean, Mark Mike Mike Conley and Marcus All have been fantastic, and you know it. It wouldn't shock me at all if they win tonight, and you know I, I would certainly expect the Spurs to close out at home in a Game Seven. But you know those guys have been those guys have been great, and you know I I doubted them coming into the series, so I'm I'm not going to doubt them anymore. Yeah, well, the Grizzlies have like a million, but you know they got a ton of playoff minutes, and obviously when you're playing against the Spurs, that's that doesn't really matter that much because they've got like 500 playoff games under their belt. Um, but the Grizzlies, it's not like this is new for them. Even a game six pressurized situation or a game seven pressurized situation, they've been in a lot of wars in the past. They haven't come out on the right end of them. Um, they would just, I mean, obviously if they, if they could get the win tonight, they would literally have to play their best game of the entire season. But, I mean, it's 48 minutes. It's one night, right? Like, if if you did it, then you would be able to knock off the Spurs. But tough task for sure. They're up against it. Um, the other series that we have not mentioned so far is the Clippers Jazz. And this ISO Joe thing, you you covered Johnson when you were covering the Nets. Um, yep. And so I, I'm interested in your perspective on this. I think, you know, I remember at the beginning of the season when we were talking about the Jazz, uh, one of the questions that I asked leading in, into the preseason was, can Gordon Hayward be the best guy on uh, a contender? And and we thought we'd see it as the season played out. And of course, he made his first All Star team. And and Gordon Hayward is legitimately awesome, but it is not Gordon Hayward, right? We wondered with the way the Jazz were, game on the line, need a bucket, who's the guy? And that answer was always, well, it's going to have to be Hayward. And then they have this Joe Johnson playoff revelation, which is. I mean, this is this is crazy. So, as someone who knows Johnson and covered him uh, for a couple of years out there when you were on the Brooklyn beat, what do you make of all this? I've seen this a million times before. Uh, Joe Joe Johnson to me is one of the most underrated players of the last ten or fifteen years. He's a guy who has, I think, very unfortunately, been come to define by the money he's been paid. And the fact that he's made a bunch of all-star teams that people didn't think he should make. Uh, the second part, I think, is nonsense. And the first part, I think, is complete nonsense. Uh, he, he has been a tremendous player for a long time who has always been, uh, he's always been a guy that's been, able, that's been incredibly smart about how he uses his body to create space and get shots off. I mean, you saw that that play in game one when he dribbles down, he goes to the left wing, he gets Jamal Crawford on his left hip, he takes two dribbles in the middle of the lane and puts up that 10-foot floater. I've seen that move maybe 7 million times in person. <laughs> and it works every time because he's a six seven guy who's like 255 pounds. That's a two-guard. I mean, he's, 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 not, uh, he's the closest thing to LeBron in a wing in the league. And I don't mean that like he is LeBron James, but like there's just no wing players that have that are built like him. I mean, he's that's why he's been able to transition so easily to playing power forward, even as he's gotten to his mid thirties, because he's just built like a brick house, and he's this massive guy that is able to use his size and speed and and the or his size and strength and the angles to get to his spots on the floor where he's comfortable and make buckets and. Um, he's a great spot up shooter, uh, always has been. I mean, I think, you know, you look at how, at how well Vince Carter has played up until his 40th birthday, right. With the Grizzlies been tremendous role player for them. 
to me, Joe Johnson will be able to be doing this for five, six, seven years if he wants. Like, I, because I, I, his game has never been built on athleticism in terms of speed or quickness. I mean, he's always a guy that's, you know, played with kind of this old man style and, and using his strength and the angles and everything. So, um, for me, as somebody who likes Joe personally and has always thought he's gotten a bum rap for his contract and some of the stuff that's gone on and has seen him, you know, beat the Toronto Raptors in 2014 basically by himself and then go toe-to-toe with LeBron in the, the Nets series or the Heat series the following round. Um, you know, it's been fun for me to see a guy that's, I think, really been unfairly maligned for a long time, you know, get get some credit and some just do for – a hell of a series and potentially getting the getting the Jazz into the second round of the playoffs. What befells him is what you know would hurt Harden this year in terms of and Kawhi for that matter in terms of an MVP case. And while I was on the Westbrook side of things, I am well aware of the way that coverage can change our perception about things. And Russell Westbrook makes for the absolute best highlights. Right, Harden does not. Yep. Kawhi does not. And for an entire career, Joe Johnson just doesn't. He just doesn't make for good highlights, right? It's 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 like other it's like than a, his other than his buzzer beaters. Other than his, <laughs> it's it's like it's it's right. like Duncan. You know what I mean? It's almost like yeah. a game winner is the only way that you're going to see a you know a, a video on uh, on Twitter about Joe Johnson or with Tim Duncan or any of these guys, right? Whereas every play some of these other guys make. If it happens, you're aware of it within five minutes. Where uh, Joe Johnson, I mean, hell, I, I don't even. There's probably a lot of Joe Johnson highlight videos, but none of them have been watched all that much. <laughs> you know, right? Exactly. No, and it's he's he's not, he's boring. You know, people. You know, people gave him the. You know, Howard Beck famously gave him the ISO Joe moniker back in 2012 when I was covering the Nets with him and. uh you know, he, he, he doesn't have this flashy, overwhelmingly exciting style of all, but it's effective and it's been effective for years. And, yeah. you know, he, he just continues to get the job done. And it, like I said, is somebody who likes Joe personally and has seen him, you know, like I said, I, I just have always thought it was crap that this guy has gotten ragged on for getting paid a ton of money by the Hawks in 2010. Like, why is it his fault that he got a six year contract? I mean, I just, I've never, I've never understood that. I mean, he, you know, I, it, I don't know why he gets blamed for making money, but it, it's, it's fun to see him on this stage and having this kind of success, having this kind of success to play in this kind of role, you know, with the young Utah team that to your point really needed a guy like him. Right. I mean, like you yep. said, coming into the season, that was our big question about Utah. Do they have somebody that's able to step up at the big moments? And, you know, Gordon Hayward's had some really big moments in the series too, but having Joe Johnson there as the old reliable guy that you could throw the ball to and know that down the stretch of games, you're going to get a bucket. You know, that's been a huge thing for them and a big reason why they got a chance to close this out tomorrow night. Is tomorrow night the end of the Clippers as we know them? Who knows, man? I mean, I saw you joking about how you're, you're not too upset after the many battles they've had with, with the Grizz that, <laughs> that the Clips are, are going down in flames, and I, I can't blame you. I mean, I personally would have been happy to see those two teams go up against each other again. I mean, that's, as you talked about earlier with rivalries in the league, that's a true rivalry we don't really get anymore. But um, I don't know, man. I mean, look, if it was me, if I was the Clippers, I would not be re-signing Blake Griffin this summer. I would potentially not be re-signing Chris Paul this summer, so I would lean towards keeping him, uh, and I would be I would be readjusting things personally. But, with Griffin, you got to do uh, it. With with Griffin, you'd have to do a sign and trade. I mean, you can't get nothing for him. You can't just let him go. I don't know. I would rather I would rather get nothing. I mean, if you could do a sign and trade, fine. But then teams are hard capped. It's hard to do sign and trades now. I mean, to me, look. Here's the thing, right? If you keep Blake Griffin, you're paying him five years. And what, hundred and eighty million dollars, right? Guy's twenty eight years old. He's had season ending injuries the last two years. He's had myriad leg injuries the last three years. Um, he's a guy whose game was built on athleticism and explosion that is now in his late twenties and has had a million leg injuries. I mean, to me, I think this next contract for Blake Griffin could wind up looking a lot like Amari Stoudemire's contract with the Knicks. Where at the beginning of it, he looked great and looked like an MVP candidate. 
And by the end of it, his body just had broken down on him. And he just, he was a good role player, but he was a good role player making $25, $26 million a year. And, you know, I, I love Blake's game. I, I think he's always been underrated in terms of his skills. I think he's got more ball skills than people give him credit for. Um, I think if he was not playing on a team with, with Chris Paul, he could be kind of a point forward for a team. But I, I just look at him, and to me, if you commit to signing him for five years that much money, I just think it's tough. I mean, I think it's going to be tough to build a contender with him. And, and look, the way the NBA is going right now, you know, Blake Griffin's kind of a, a square peg in a round hole. I mean, you need power forwards now that can either shoot threes consistently or be great defensive players or be kind of point forward types, right? Like Draymond Green's kind of become the prototypical power forward the teams are looking for. And Blake can, can do the passing stuff and the ball handling stuff, but he can't do the other two. And yeah, I, I just I just think it's going to be tough to build a contender on him. So to me, I would move in a direction of trying to do a stopgap year, find some guys, just give one year deals to guys, try to have something around Blake or uh, Chris and DeAndre for a year, then go into free agency next summer when LeBron's a free agent, when Paul George is a free agent, um, when Demarcus Cousins is a free agent. There's you know, a bunch of guys next summer that could be free maybe try to get some guys to come in and kind of build the next stage of the team. Uh, but who knows? I mean, the Clippers, you would have thought, would have been broken up multiple times the last few years, and they keep bringing the same crew back. So, you know, to, to assume that they're going to do anything but re-sign everybody and run it back is probably foolish. But if, if I was running the team, that's what I would do. I wonder if Doc could withstand it. Well, I mean, there's been a lot of rumors about Doc potentially being interested in the Orlando job or mm-hmm. or going other places. I mean, I I don't I don't think he's going to leave. But you know, everybody keeps I, let me I, ask you about this because everybody keeps yeah. talk, like, uh, amongst our old media friends that's a that's a big topic of conversation. Is like it's just been for the last couple months. I keep hearing about oh yeah, Doc's going to go to Orlando. It's like one of these things that everybody talks about, but then I never. Uh, just let me hear what is the idea because I never really press on this is the idea that yeah. obviously they blew out Hennigan that he would go there and he would run that team or he would run that team and coach that team and 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 then that would mean they just blow out Vogel I'm not sure oh okay I'm honestly not sure I mean yeah. I, I don't I I would think he would want to coach yeah but but I I don't know I mean you know when Jason Kidd went to the box initially he was going to just be team president yeah and then you know they, they things got kind of reworked around and he ended up coaching so uh you know I, i'm not sure what the situation would be but there there's just been a lot like there's just that's been a hot rumor not just with the media but around the league for a while that doc you know potentially could wind up back in orlando he's got a home there uh you know it it, it, it who knows he, all i'll say is that with the clippers right now with blake and J.J. Redick and Chris Paul, all free agents this summer. Uh, I think trying to trying to project out what's going to happen, right. I think it's impossible. It's going to be – and look, the other thing we don't know here, right, is this is Steve Ballmer's first chance as owner of the Clippers to make a really big decision, right? Like, he, he came in, he bought – he buys the team, everybody's under contract, Doc Rivers is already in charge. Everything is all set up, right? So let's see. Maybe Ballmer says, you know what? I don't think this is working. Let's try something else. I don't know. It's going to be, it, you know, it, it's, it's a big inflection point for them. If they lose to the Jazz and they go home in the first round for the second year in a row, they don't make it out of the playoffs the first, first or second round for the sixth year in a row with the talent they have, at some point I just got to think if you're even Chris and Blake, you got to look around and go, what am I doing? Like, am I just signing up to lose in the first round every year and be the West Coast Hawks? I mean, maybe they will be. I don't know. But, um, yeah, it's going to be a fascinating summer for them no matter what happens. If they, they get by the series and get crushed by the Warriors or they, they lose to the Jazz, it'll be, it'll be really, really interesting to see what happens. Last thing, uh, that team that you just mentioned, the Warriors, you've been covering them all year long. Um, they were clearly devastating in the first round. I mean, they just buried Portland. Um, and that first quarter of that last game, that game four was just, that was like peak of powers. Oh, anybody that watched that is thinking, oh my God. 
like who could feasibly deal with this of the two um the clippers and the jazz could you foresee either of them winning multiple games against the warriors no i think the clippers would probably get swept i think okay. the jazz the jazz the jazz well maybe the jazz could win two if everything breaks right I, the warriors played the, the jazz three or four times this year and the jazz were never even close to healthy for any of them um, I, I would like to see them play a healthy Utah team. I think it'd be a fun series. Uh, you know, the Warriors don't have an answer for Rudy Gobert necessarily. It would be like a couple um, years ago, right? Wouldn't it, it would be kind of a couple years ago when the Grizzlies played the Warriors in yeah, the sense that yeah. if if you can if you could play them in the nineties, then the Jazz have a chance. But the Jazz ain't gonna be scoring no hundred and fifteen points. So right, it's just this imposition of wills. At least with those. Yeah. Two. No. No, you're totally right. I think that's a great. I think that's a great comparison. You know, Utah's kind of a throwback team, like those when Memphis was. You know, I yeah. think you'd even admit when Memphis was at another level, winning close to sixty games. I mean, that's sure. you know that's that's kind of the team they've grown into, and it would be a fun contrast in styles. And look, I just I've seen this Clipper thing with the Warriors, right? Ten games in a row that the uh, that that the, the Clippers have lost to the Warriors, and this season. You would see the, the Clippers after these games, and they they look like they were like they were coming out of a war zone. I mean, they just said they they were just they were just totally in shock about what happened. So, I mean, I I think from my standpoint, I would just much rather see a Utah series um, just from a stylistic standpoint, seeing something different. But I, you know, as, as good as Utah has been, and, and as impressive as Quint, job as Quinn Snyder's done as coach for them, uh, it's hard for me to. Uh, it's hard for me to see. Um, it's hard for me to see them really pushing the the Warriors past at most two games in that series. I just think Golden State, as you saw the last couple of games of this Portland series, especially Game Four, they're just so much better than everyone else. And if their if their guys are healthy through the playoffs, I, I just don't see how they're going to lose to anybody. Durant, fine. Yeah. He, he seems fine. I mean, yeah. he, he obviously, you saw on Monday, or he comes out in game four, has that massive dunk and a couple of huge plays in the first quarter, a couple of blocks. And, you know, then the game was over and it was basically just a controlled scrimmage after that. Um, but we're to the point where it's but, probably uh, not going to, like, you, you don't you don't foresee a circumstance where this is, this is tough on Durant to be playing every single game throughout the playoffs. Do you think he's fine now? I think so. I mean, look, you never know, right? But I think I think they just were extremely cautious with this calf injury because they they could be, right? They're playing Portland, team they should have crushed, and they did. And they could give Durant extra time with a with a tricky injury. I mean, calf injuries can be tricky, so they give him some extra rest and make sure he's okay. And and he comes back and looks great. And now he gets yeah. an entire week off to rest. Mm-hmm. And you know they're not going to play till at earliest Sunday, and and you know maybe not until maybe not until Tuesday, the full eight days off. So, you know I I think that you know as long as like I said as long as their four guys are healthy and their supporting cast is relatively healthy, you know obviously it'd be better for them if Steve Kerr came back. But even if even if Steve needs to take the rest of the playoffs off to get his health situation right. They just have so much talent. Yeah, that Kerr thing. Really God, just can't, Tim, Tim, that that Kerr thing is just heartbreaking because you know I know people. That, I know people that know him, and obviously he's he's talked about the surgery. You know, even when he was on a he was on a podcast earlier this year with Simmons, and he was he said I would discourage anyone from getting back surgery unless yep. they absolutely have yep. to because it has been it has just been a nightmare for him and. From people I know that know him, it's been one of those. He is in such pain all the time that at least the coaching, he could, he, at least he's doing something fun. It's like I'm either going to be in hell around my house or I'll be in hell doing something that I want to do um, because that's how much yeah, pain the guy that's is really in. Good. You know, yeah. and, and now, a, now he can't really even good. do that. Yeah, I mean, look, he can't golf. Like he can't, he can't do anything. He, his symptoms have never really gone away. I mean, you know, he he got to the point where he could come back, and so he did, right? But he never got to a point where it was fixed. 
And, uh, yeah, I mean, look, as Steve would be the first to tell you, he's got a really good life, right? Like he's, he's making a lot of money. He's got a great job. Uh, he's, you know, he's had an incredibly successful career. So as a player, as an executive, as a coach, so it's not like he, he's never going to be one to ask anybody for sympathy. Right. But it's been tough, you know, as somebody who likes him personally, it's just about anybody does who meets Steve Kerr. I mean, there's few people that are better, more decent people than him anywhere, let alone in the league than, than him. Uh, It's been really tough to see. I mean, it's, it's tough to see him in this kind of physical pain all the time where it's just constantly there. And, you know, imagine having headaches and, and, and problems like that and then going and coaching basketball games in 20,000-seat arenas with all the lights and all the noise and everything that's going on in those games and having to do media stuff multiple times a day and everything else that comes with being a head coach of a team. Like, it's just and, – and to do it with the way he's done it, being, you know, not even really letting anybody on the outside know he's having problems and, you know, still being a friendly guy and smiling and laughing and, you know – talking about social issues and like all the stuff that Steve has done, it's, it's pretty remarkable. He's been able to even do this much. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think anybody who's ever met him would agree that, you know, the, the, it, it just would be really nice if he could find some kind of solution for this, not just so he could come back and coach because it, you know, this is such a, a, a great opportunity for him that it'd be a shame if it, uh, if it had to go away for, for him not being able to coach through with this, but um, also just from a, a life standpoint, like it just would be, you just don't want to see somebody have to just suffer on a routine basis like this. So I certainly hope that over the next couple of weeks here, you know, Steve can, can find something that works for him. And if not now, then in the summer over, or over the next few months, he can, he can get himself to a point where going into the next season, you know, hopefully this isn't a, a thing that's still hanging over him like this. Me too. Obviously, there is that basketball angle to it, though, Tim, which is, and you talked about him, you talked about them as long as they had their four guys. You do not believe that his absence, if it has to be prolonged, possibly all the way through the finals, that his absence uh, on that bench would change the ultimate trajectory of whatever the Warriors are, are, are destined to achieve, which most people would predict a championship, that that does not change if Kerr can't be there for it. Yeah, I mean, I, I look, I, I don't want to make it seem like the Warriors don't need a coach because that's not true. Um, uh, I, I don't think that's true. I think Steve has done a tremendous job. And it, as you know, Chris, I mean, there's a lot that goes into coaching besides uh, besides just the X's and O's on the court. There's a managing of guys. There's a managing of the locker room. There's all, all that kind of stuff. I would seriously and, say, hey, I, I mean, I mean this honestly. And it's something that I always, I I think I foolishly disregarded sometimes years ago when Lionel Hollins was the coach. And that is when you go through an entire, listen, when you get to that level, virtually everybody, and if they can't, then somebody on their bench, the X's and O's are going to be taken care of. It ain't that complicated. Okay. But dealing with people, the ability to get through to guys, manage egos, get them to play every single night, and most importantly, the managing egos part is a massive percentage of successful basketball coaches, right? Um, that I think I, I, I think you know, it's always about your inbounds play. What's your out of bounds playing? What are your rotations like, and whatever else, and and those all matter, right? And they are all worthy of criticism, but. That whole dealing with the egos is is so much greater than what I originally perceived, I would say, until I was around it every day. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like everything else, right? Yeah. Like, it's easy, and this is not a knock on anybody listening, but, like, it's easy to sit at home. And we were talking about earlier with Hoiberg, right? So that's a little different situation. But it's easy to sit at home and watch the game and say, why isn't the coach playing X guy, right? Or why isn't he doing this? Or why isn't he doing that? And, you know, there's usually reasons. Maybe they're not always the right reasons, but there's usually reasons. And there's a lot, like I was saying before, there are, there's like the head coach of a team is basically the CEO of a team, right? There's like, he's a CEO, the GM is a CEO of, of, of the whole organization. 
but like the, the head coach is the CEO of a team and he's got 15 guys on that team, all of whom think they should be playing 48 minutes, all of whom think they should be getting every shot. And you've got to, you got to manage that. You got to keep everybody happy on the same page, going in the right direction. I mean, that stuff is all really hard to do and it takes a certain kind of guy to do it. And so I'm not trying to say that not having Steve Kerr would be a, um, it, like it wouldn't matter because I think it would matter. But even if, if Steve isn't on the bench, you've already seen, like, he was at game four. He just wasn't on the bench. He was in the locker room, and he's been around. So I think even if, even if he isn't able to return to the sideline this season, he's still going to be around, and he's still going to be involved. And so I, I think his presence will still be felt, even if it's not literally during the games. And Mike Brown, the reason they went and hired Mike Brown is because he has coached in the NBA Finals. He's won Coach of the Year awards. He's won a ton of games. He know he's dealt with star players before. He, he's he's as experienced an assistant coach as there is in the league from a head coaching perspective. And he can he can step in and run a game. And he's always been extremely well prepared. That stuff's not going to be a problem. And uh, again, I just think. If Golden State, if it was last year and Golden State the, was the talent level was was more even, I could see it potentially being a problem. Um, but I, I just think they have so much talent now that I really just think that as long as their guys are healthy and things stay basically the way they are now, I just don't know how anybody is going to be able to beat them four times out of seven. I just don't. He is Tim Bontemps, national columnist for the Washington Post. Follow him on Twitter at Tim Bontemps. Bontemps, you're the man. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate you coming on today. Anytime, my man. Hope to talk to you again soon. That's going to do it for another Ringer NBA show. If you dig what you're hearing, go give us a rating and review on iTunes, and we will talk to you on Tuesday.